Hello everyone and welcome to another episode of Billy Watson TV. It gives me great pleasure to have a first time guest on and one who's also originates from Scotland, which doesn't happen too often. So um, he's been a he's a DJ and makes electronic music and is getting involved in conferences with Andrew Kaufman and the like about alchemy. So I'm going to delve into various things tonight, but I'd like to welcome you to the show, Steve Young. How are you doing today, Steve? Uh, I'm doing great, thanks. How about yourself? I'm hanging in there as usual. <laughs> yeah, thanks for having me on the show. Yeah, yeah, it's good to yeah. connect with a fellow uh, uh, Scott as well. You know, I, I lived away for a long time. I moved away in 2000, lived in England for a bit, and then America and that. And so, uh, you know, I didn't actually meet a lot of Scottish people during those 18 years, you know, especially not in America, you know. Uh, yeah. So, yeah, it's good to connect uh, with a fellow Scott. Now, I've been been back a few years. Yeah, and did you meet, uh, first of all, you, you left, I think, Scotland when you were maybe 22, something like that? Uh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, so then you went down to Norfolk. Well, I know you lived there, but did you travel around different parts of England? What was the reason for the move? Yeah, well, I was in, I, I, I did my, I, I did university here in uh, St Andrews, you know, which is near where, near, near where I grew up. Uh, and, uh, and after that, I wanted to keep sort of studying and I got a, a PhD position down in Guildford you know, just outside yeah. London, like, so I lived there for, uh, like, four or five years as well, I had a job there for a little while after my PhD, and then, and then I was out of work again, and uh, an opportunity came up in Norwich, um, and so it was just a few hours up the road from where we were, so we, we, we just went up there just for work reasons, really, um, but we ended up settling there for about 10 years, uh, and during that time, I started DJing out a lot you know there was just a lot going on a lot of you know club nights and festivals and everything mm. and uh so th it was in, in that 10-year period when I really started to like you know knuckle down in the on the music side of things um and just get out playing uh and DJing as much as I possibly could um and yeah I got my first uh record out in 2007 um and uh you know it made a good splash and and then I just started getting invited uh you know abroad and stuff you know out to like shows in Europe and that and by 2010 I was <clears throat> I was you know comfortable and ready to actually just let go of my job which it was it, it was going anyway you know it was like totally like the company was just like collapsing you know I was like one of the last people off the ship you know uh, but uh yeah so uh I was like all right let's just go full-time with this music caper I'll just um you know gonna gonna make music as much as I possibly can and just say yes to to every uh you know invite you know that i get every opportunity that kind of comes my way i'm just going to go for it and just learn what i can from it and just do do, do as best i can you know and uh yeah it took off and uh, it was really good I, I don't even know how many shows i did i'm thinking probably 200 and something 250 that sort of amount of shows in in 10 years but um uh and got around the world and stuff and yeah no it was really positive um, and then when 2020 came around, though, I was at that point starting to get to the end, uh, maybe I my tether with it a bit, you know, it was like, uh, I was kind of at a point where I'm thinking, well, what do I want to do next? You know, do, do I want to be doing this forever? And so it was, yeah, things kind of like came, came to a halt anyway, you know, in, in 2020 to a pause. And, uh, so I had, I had a, a time to actually just reflect and just like dig in my heels and just put down my roots um you know i feel like it like for 30 years i've just been living for gigs 
just living for gigs. I mean, you, you'll know what I mean, right? It's like your whole life just revolves around when your next show is because you got to be there. It's like a fixed time slot, right? <laughs> you got to yeah. be there. And everything revolves around those. It's like you're, you're, on, you're on your own uh, time, you know, uh, clock or whatever. We, we hope you've got a family uh, involved with us as well. It's easy when it's just yourself. What was it like? When did you meet your wife? And was that before you went full-time musically? Because that's a big yeah, yeah. job to just rely on the gigs and then away from home. Know, yeah. <laughs> yeah, no, I met my wife um, at school. Yeah, we met really young, like uh, 15 years old. Um, and um, yeah, so we were together through through all of that, basically. So so yeah, she was she was full supportive of the music thing, you know. I mean, she'd known me since you know basically the whole time I've been a DJ. So, uh, you know, she knew it was just yeah my my thing, and I was just I'd always been about it really since I was a little kid, and and there was just lots lots of opportunity at that time, you know. As I say, like so, so much buzz, you know, um, especially just around that London area as well. You know, there's just so much happening, and there was so much online happening, so much excitement around music. Uh, and music sharing, you know, that sort of era, like that sort of like um, early internet era in the 2000s, like everyone started sharing lots of like music and stuff like that. And it was just like a, a creative explosion, you know, the music software and uh, people people connecting online and everything. So, yeah, there was just a, a huge amount of buzz, a huge amount of activity. And uh, and I just loved the music. And I thought, you know, if I just put if I just put everything into this, if I just go at it, you know, every day, as I would a job, then uh, I think I can, you know, I can do this. I can live live the dream, as it were. And uh, yeah, you know, did it. So, yeah, it worked out. You know, I'm still here. <laughs> when you say that you're um, doing gigs, what kind of music were you playing? Are you playing your own music that you've created, or is it basically DJ and other people's music? And you know, because that's involving time to make the tracks and everything as well. If you're doing your own, yeah. Music. yeah so. In the early days, yeah, I mean, when I started uh, DJing, I was just buying records and, you know, spinning records, like, and uh, and then moved on to, like, CDs and that in the sort of early 2000s. Um, and then, yeah, by 2007, that was when I, I released my my first record. <clears throat> and then, so um, it was called Music is My Weapon. Okay. Music is My Weapon, yeah, was the first one. Mind Cell was, I think, the third. Um, but they... Uh, <clears throat> Yeah, so the you know the the tracks they you know they make an impact. It's uh, it's like you know people start um, uh, giving you offers uh, to to play, and so basically over the next uh, five years, I'd say like I, I went to a point of playing mostly other people's music with a few of my own songs, to playing yeah. mostly my my own music with a few of other people's, you know. And sometimes I would play sets of all only my own music, um, but occasionally I would you know chuck in some other stuff as well. But it was usually about 80% of uh, my own music, you know. Uh, I was never too, like, militant about whether to play other people's or not, you know, because ultimately it's a party. And if you've got a great song that you think is going to, you know, fit in that moment, then, you know, you got to put it in there, you know. Yeah. Dance floor pumping and all that kind of stuff? Yeah, yeah. Great times uh, on the dance floor. Like, I love the the dancing and, uh, you know, I just love getting people moving and, you know, kind of a culmination of that was um, in Hawaii. They have these ecstatic dances, um, and it's like every week. You know, like same time every week, uh, same location, and they'll have different DJs, uh, people who are traveling through, and other like local DJs and that. And it's just two hours, one DJ in the daytime. There's another one on Thursday evening. It's a nighttime one, and 
but it's uh it's such a lovely thing it's just like one dj um and take people on this journey for like two to three hours and there's no talking on the dance floor right so I mean, you can talk, go and talk by the fire or, you know, go and, uh, you know, talk. There's like a tea um, you know, place we can get tea and smoothies and stuff. You know, there are places to talk, but the dance floor is, you know, and that's really the only rule. Just no talking yeah. on the dance floor. And what a difference that makes uh, for not only for the, the people dancing, the experience, the, uh, the, the experience of ecstasy they can achieve, you know, sober or whatever, you know, but just from just having that uninterrupted uh, ability to just dance, let themselves go, um, but also from a DJ point of view, because um, so often you're actually playing to a group of people who are actually talking. You know, <laughs> you can hear it in a club, right? People are just standing around drinking, and go rah rah rah, and over the top of the music, there's just this like wall of like human like racket just going on. You know, you're just fighting against. But but when the dance floor is like silent. Um, and everyone's just soaking in the music like 100%. It's it's a powerful uh, experience, yeah. So in a couple of years I lived there and I was playing them every month or so, and um, it was like really, um, uh, I really felt like this was, you know, the, the pinnacle of the DJ experience yeah. for me. It was like really it was pretty good. good. Hawaii to a crowd that's actually listening and into the music. When we'll, when we'll <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I know that Tim Booth from uh, the group James, he does quite weird, weird dancing when the instrumentals and stuff and I think it's a bit of that kind of shamanic kind of, kind of dance and the kind you can reach like is it the Sufis or the, the whirling der- dervishes they, oh they kind yeah of, the, the um, well. whirling dervishes yeah no I mean ecstatic dance is basically you know just like a rave I mean it's not a particular type of dance it's just uh it's just like a you know people dancing but with the rule that you don't talk on the dance floor you know you don't hit on people it's just like it's just held as a sacred space for dancing so people can just dance however they want um and obviously no cameras or anything like that as well you're not going to be getting like filmed you know someone coming up and filming you or snapping you while you're dancing you know so it's just reserved as a space for uh for dance um and you dance however you want you know um so it's it's really just a, a rave otherwise in, in that respect but um uh you know people just really um I th- it's it's really th- therapeutic you know um that was like a sunday morning one and uh there would be people you know older people younger people children um uh and, and it was beautiful just dancing on a on a sunday afternoon um and the community together uh it's it's a wonderful thing you know it was like a yeah sort of like a religion you know because it was every sunday it'd been going for like three decades you know was um, it, it was a time here when i went to some scottish country dancing it's like me and my first wife and like everyone else was grannies and, and that again <laughs> but we were 30 years younger but actually as you say it's kind of therapeutic it's the kind of thing of people getting together and just yeah dancing you know it's a physical activity and the kind of endorphins come from that and then you talk and you socialize and it was quite a good thing there's actually one locally that i've signed up to the facebook group for and my girlfriend's like what the hell are you doing <laughs> Thinking about going to the local country dancing club, I was like, I'm thinking about it. It's quite good. <laughs> I think, I think yeah, we should do more often. You know, these Kaylee dances. I know, and stuff you're and right. <laughs> yeah, yeah, man. I, I, you know, at the time I remember at school thinking that Scottish country dancing was lame, but now when I think back to it, I remember just having so much fun, just like swinging, swinging around and skipping and like switching partners and all that. I mean, it was it was brilliant, you know, and it really is great for the the community, and it's not something I've done for. A long time and i 
yeah, particularly I was thinking about that kind of thing a lot during like the lockdown, you know, when everything had just shut down, I was thinking about all that culture and that, you know, we, we used to have people getting together and everything and, you know, really thinking, wow, you know, have we lost that now, you know, or is that under attack, you know? Um, but uh, yeah, no, I would love to go to uh, Cayley again, the Scottish country dance. I'd get right into it. <laughs> I was at Kelvin Grove Museum a couple of weeks ago and they had on the Sunday afternoon a Cayley music going off in the, in the big kind of prominent pavement bit there. There was at least a couple of hundred people for two or three hours giving it wild day with the Cayley. And it's good yeah, to see, you yeah. know, it just brings Brilliant. joy to people, you know, it's, it's, and even people watching and stuff there all get into it as well. Yeah. So yeah. when you went when when you were fifteen, sixteen, this is when you started playing around with electronic music and going to raves and stuff like that. Yeah. That back when the second summer of love, so to speak, because I was an early raver in all those days when E hit the streets and that kind of thing. Were you were you taking <laughs> the drugs and going to the underground parties or did you kind of just do well, it? Uh, yeah, did you know Resurrection? Do you remember Resurrection? Yeah, that kind of came in a wee uh, bit later. As it was building up, it right. got very mainstream, you know, it started off underground and it seemed purer and real people yeah. into it at that point. And then the media got a hold of it, turned it into something else. And all you know is these guys come up to you saying, how many drugs you had tonight, mate? You know, you're like, fuck off. <laughs> yeah. It was an experience, yeah. I think I went to like uh, maybe four or five of them, like between sort of the age of like 16 and 18. Wow. Um, and then... And then I didn't really have like a, pr- a proper like rave experience like that again for for many years. I went to some clubs and that, of course, but uh, like I didn't experience like a a large scale like festival rave like that again for many years again until I think like my, my yeah mid twenties or so. Um, and uh, I was because I was doing PhD and that, and I was just I was kind of very into you know I was into books a lot of that you know and coding and you know very much into a lot of that stuff. But I was going clubbing and stuff, yeah. I was going to um, out in London where we were going to drum and bass parties and, and that kind of thing. And I, I started DJing out in London actually in about 2003. What made you do uh, that? The first thing, just what made you go out there and say, fuck it, I'm going to be a DJ? Well, I mean, I'd been, a de- I'd been DJing since like, you know, uh, forever, really. I mean, my parents had record decks and I, I used to make mixtapes for people even before I had decks. You know, I would make uh, uh, tape mixes, you know. So I was always making mixes for people and uh, it just, yeah, it just kind of went on. And, um, you know, my, my friends bought me some decks as a wedding, as a wedding present right. uh, <laughs> as well. Uh, and like, uh, I was in like 2003 and that was kind of a sign as well. Um, and, uh, um, but yeah, as I say, there was just so much happening. I was able to just, you know, it was so easy to just contact people online and send them a mix and be like, hey, you're going to give me a slot or whatever. So there was a lot of that kind of like hustling for gigs, you know, just contacting people and being like, you know, will you will you let me on and or entering competitions and stuff. At that sort of time, I did a lot of that stuff. Um, but once I had my own music out there, uh, it was pretty, you know, to, yeah. from there, like it, it it goes a long way, you know, when you start getting your own tracks out. Yeah, yeah. I have listened to quite a few of your tracks on your website, Headflux, and I think. I got it initially just listening to it. It gives that something different about it. And then since then, I watched your interviews, and you're obviously making them these days in the four thirty two hertz. Mm, and I mm-hmm. think you can yeah. feel that just when you when you play it. Um, yeah. Have you always? When did you make the switch from that? Is that a permanent thing? Everything's done in four thirty two now. And would you like to tell people 
you know, this because I was telling my son about it, and just I, I explained that you know when you get the you put the vibration through the plate, and the p patterns are not as good looking when it's in four forty compared to four thirty two. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. Explanation and that, that you can see a physical representation of the harmony is much more beautiful geometric uh, shapes and stuff. But actually, it affects us physically as well, doesn't it? It's like disharmony, the 440. So would you like to explain yeah. that a little bit? Sure, yeah, yeah. So, um, <clears throat> well, with, I mean, the basic difference, like at a really simple level, the di main difference between 440 tune music and 432 tune music is uh, 440 is higher than 432. 432 is lower than 440. And so that higher lower pitch difference, um, you know, well, I notice it with guitar, right? So I, I sometimes tune the guitar back and forward between 440 and 432. Like if I'm trying to play along with something that's in 440, I got to tune it back into 440. But if I'm just jamming myself, I like to play in 432. Um, and, you know, the difference is tension. That's the difference. You actually have to tense the string. You're turning it, you're pulling the string tighter and to get it up into 440 than uh, in 432. And, um, and I noticed the same thing pl playing these kind of two different um, tunings in, in DJ sets because for a while I had, you know, all my old music's in 440, but I had all this new music, which is in 432, and I had to play both of them um, and, uh, and see how that affected people. And now I would say, like, generally, I think the 440 music is more exciting, more kind of ra raging, you know, and, and people, you know, gets people like... Yeah, like it's whooping like, and cheering, like yeah, woo, <laughs> you know. <laughs> um, now, uh, and and the, the four thirty two stuff is just more more calming and more like centering, like more um, you know, that more like med meditative, like dancing with your eyes closed kind of thing. Um, even if it's the same track, just having it in four forty would get people more like that. Well, no, I'm talking about yeah, I'm talking about music that was like made in you know four thirty two versus music that was made in four forty. And you know, with electronic music, you could take 440 and bring it to 432, and vice versa. I just wondered if you well, you could pitch it up or pitch it down, but it's it's not the same because um, you're changing the speed of it as well. So, you know, we, we, if you just take a, a piece of music that's finished and you try to retune it, it's not it's not the same as making it in in an alternative tuning. It's it, yeah, it, yeah. Music guru and he's made an album in 432, and he said exactly that. If it's so, something's made and it's much better but it can be done yeah so. yeah it's it's because of the numbers in, in that you know like the <clears throat> you think of that the waves you know and like waves being able to join perfectly together you know with like no overlaps and stuff like in the 432 system it's it's a system of tuning based on the natural numbers the natural number series like one two three four you know um and uh so um that gives it kind of a, a mathematical um, sort of elegance, you know, in the same in the same way that you would get in, in like geometry, for example. You know, you get a lot of the same numbers as you do in geometry. You know, numbers like 180 or 360 or you know 432, 144. These, these are all numbers that appear in geometric shapes. You know, that are fundamental and stuff. And so, and those numbers appear in your music as well. It shows that there's a correspondence between the music and this geometry. You know, that there's a there's an, an inner harmony in the actual numbers you're using, and then that you can then see that effect when you um, run the vibration through a cymatic plate, and then you'll you'll see patterns coming out um, 
which represent those those harmonics. Um, so yeah, I, you know, one of the first things I remember hearing about 440 was that um, Elvis Presley, the first rock star, was one of the the first people to um, you know use it and use it loud, you know, big loud amplified music, like exciting rock music on stages. Right tuned to 440 and it was the first allegedly to make you know girls like scream and you know faint and collapse and stuff like that you know that that was kind of un unprecedented as far as i'm aware girls were not screaming and collapsing at music events <clears throat> uh, prior to elvis presley or whatever <laughs> you know uh, and some suggested that that's because of the tighter you know the, the more tense like music and the you know the faster beats and everything of course we can get used to it we can build up tolerance you know it's like with drugs or, you know, it's the same with music. You can build up tolerance to music, you know. Um, like I, I was very tolerant of all sorts of music before, but like now, <laughs> if, I, if I don't like it, if it sounds right, we have like, I mean, I've got to get it off like now, you know, it's like that has to go. <laughs> well, you don't, don't listen to the radio much then, do you? <laughs> no, not at all, no. <laughs> so much right in there. <laughs> but yeah, so... The, the the 432s yeah I, I found it quite yeah therapeutic something about it it's just it's just good to listen to uh, i don't know it's just yeah. very pleasant i mean your music as well is obviously very high standard what would you like to tell us about i don't know if your latest album is a bit further on have you if you done something new with that compared to your other ones it seems like yeah i, I think yeah, I, I did take a different approach to that one actually. Um, so I, I, um, I approached it. Well, I, I was taking a lot of inspiration from alchemy and putting a lot of alchemical thought into the actual like design of the track. Um, but uh, on a, in terms of like the sound of it, um, I was I only used sine waves and noise. So like sine waves and white noise. Which uh, sine wave is obviously like the pure tone, like a whistle, right? Um, and uh, you can make any sound by adding sine waves together. So it's like the root, uh, the si sine waves, like the kind of atom of sound, right? You can add sine waves together to make other sounds. So Is this what a synthesizer album. Sorry? Well, kind of what a synthesizer does, kind of, you can mess around with stuff and create a new sound. Yeah, yeah. On. So it just it generates a shape, yeah. So you get like, you know, squares and um, saw saw waves, uh, triangles and things well the sine wave is the is the s curve right it's the perfectly smooth wave um yeah. and it's unique you know in that regard that it is like perfectly smooth at all points like not jagged or whatever so it gives a very pure sound it's like a sound of innocence you know it's the sound of a whistle or like uh you know little bells on a music box or something like that you know it's like the pure sort of tones um so i made all all the album with just pure tones <clears throat> and uh a noise and the interaction of uh like white noise or different types of noise recorded noise a big noise being uh sound which doesn't have to tones in it right so just you know shh or, or whatever right just no tone at all and so i'd never worked like that before <clears throat> um and it was a really interesting and inspiring way of working and it gave this kind of i guess like i give a new sound compared to my older stuff where I would be using, um, you know, different wave shapes like saw waves and squares, and more, more like jagged waves in the music than just using smooth waves all the time. You know, so 
It's weird that uh, I don't know why I picked it up. It just felt something about the new album was something a bit different than the, the other, other tracks I heard. So it's good to know that. that yeah, uh, that's, yeah, I'm good to know you picked that up. Yeah. Why, why did you approach it like that? Um, first of all, I guess we should tell the audience that you, you've done a PhD in um, physics and this kind of stuff. So uh-huh, you're yeah. into the science and the physics stuff. And then basically, oh, I forgot what I was going to say there. Uh, aye, so this alchemy, the alchemy stuff, is that kind of developed out of the physics not satisfying you enough because there's kind of all these rules and laws, you know, you get taught all the nonsense really in university and all that stuff. And yeah. then you've went into alchemy and discovered that that is the true science. So you're using alchemic principles in making music. Would you like to, I know you just done this presentation with Andrew Kaufman on this topic, so it's quite in depth, but there is different stages to it. And I thought it quite interesting to maybe explain how alchemy and what your thoughts about alchemy are and how you can then relate that to the music you make. What's, what's mm-hmm. that all about? Yeah, thanks. Yeah, that's, that, that's, that's exactly right. Um, you know, I went to uh, university, studied physics um, and uh, theoretical physics mainly, but, you know, that, that I had to do modules in all fields of physics, right? I had to learn the whole field of physics. Um, and, uh, you know, when I came out and I, I wanted to find work, you know, doing doing physics, um, <laughs> it was pretty hard to find. <laughs> yeah, yeah, there was all this like weird stuff, like you know, like military, you know, military top secret stuff and everything. And I'm just like, oh, no, I'm, I'm not interested in going down that road. Um, and yeah, there just didn't seem to be a, a lot of work. And I, you know, I spent six months unemployed. And during that time, I was like talking to a lot of, uh, you know recruitment agents and stuff like that you know and like writing cvs you know making a cv trying to like i'm like basically i've been in education my whole life i'm 25 years old (laughs) i've been in education my whole entire life i've got no experience with you know work or anything but i've got all this knowledge of um you know the physical sciences and it doesn't seem to be like much use you know to companies and stuff um they're just like what they're like, well, it's all very impressive, Doctor Young, but uh, what skills have you got? <laughs> um, and, uh, you know, it's, it's overqualified I mean, you... but underskilled for this job. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, uh, anyway, you know, I, I ended up getting a job as a technical consultant, which you know is pretty general. But um, I, I was working on uh, these, uh, you know, the NFC chips they have in phones um that you can now pay with your phone or whatever so i was doing the work on that like years ago when it was still uh uh early in its development but um like testing you're basically testing the phones and testing cards and make making early like apps for it and stuff Uh, i wasn't i wasn't into it but that's you know nevertheless what i ended up doing um and uh so my but you know why I got into physics really was because I was looking for understanding. I mean, uh, I think you know, I think you can relate to that. I see that in you as well. As I just want to understand, you know, just honestly and truthfully what is going on, what, what how things work. Um, and I uh, thought that physics would be the the path, you know, to 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 gain that understanding. Um, but then you know, as the year as years went years went on, I mean. I think a lot, a lot of it. I realized a lot of it is just this, just contrived, you know, this cloud of thoughts and equations and concepts, and and it's it's all 
it's all air, you know, like alchemically, it's all air. It doesn't relate to anything in your life, you know. I mean, like the virus uh, talk, virology. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, like viruses. Yeah, like so theoretical. Uh, I mean, I sort of say, like, you know, it's like I, I, I've been an expert on quantum mechanics for, you know, 25 years now and i can't do a damn thing with it you know not a damn thing it's like it doesn't help me do anything you know it doesn't empower me in any way i can't build anything with it it's just you know um it's just a a theory it's it's not a you know the rubber doesn't meet the road right it's like it's unlike music right so music has theory there's music theory and the rubber does meet the road because the music theory uh, works by virtue of playing the music, and it, it sounds good, right? And the, the 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 you know the theory tells you how to make the frequencies sound good together, and you tune up the instrument, and you do it, and it sounds good. And if you apply the theory wrong, it sounds bad. But in in like quantum physics and a lot of the you know theoretical physics and and other sciences as well, like virology and stuff, it's all just purely thought. Um, yeah. and purely, you know, on in silico or whatever, right? It's on computers, <laughs> it's in the mind, it's, uh, you know, <laughs> and it hasn't, there's no physical component, right? Where's the physic, the actual physical component? Well, based on reality. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. When, you know, when the COVID thing first started, I was, I was super skeptical about it. I started I start thinking about like how to get some, you know, how to get some coronavirus, right? Because they were making it sound like it was the most, abundant substance in in the world like literally every country is coming out of people's breath it's on their hands it's on surfaces it's everywhere so i'm like well let's get some you know and uh i you know i i sort of sincerely tried to get some like i even tried to go on the dark web you know like like marketplaces where you could like procure anything you know like absolutely anything if you've got enough money it's like can you get some coronavirus nope Nope. Doesn't exist. <laughs> no, nobody's got any. Just can't, can't even get any coronavirus anywhere, you know. Uh, and then, of course, I I I came to learn about Andrew Kaufman and Tom Cowan and these guys, and that you know that the, the isolation of a virus has never been done. So, of course, of course, you can't get any, you know, um, because uh, no one's ever I found any. As, as far as I can tell, yeah, this it's never. <laughs> You know, it's never actually been caught and put well, into a bottle. Virus, just the debris in the bottom of a petri <laughs> dish, you know, if they point to it and say, well, yeah. that must yeah. there. That's what you're yeah, calling it. Be, yeah, because, yeah, <laughs> because I did this and I added this poison and uh, I did that to it. And yeah, I know. Yeah. Yeah, there was a, that was a, so, I mean, I guess that's how we, we sort of, we, we met, right? It was through um, Don Lester and David Parker who wrote the book, What Really Makes You Ill. And uh, they uh, they told me about you. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I met them first and then uh, they told me about you and I, I saw some of your work and stuff like that. And I guess that's how we ended right, up I just, connecting. I just remember you, um, I posted something on the Free Thinkers group with Kelly Brogan that Don had invited me to. And you shared that, so I started talking to you, but maybe you were aware of me because I've been interviewing Andrew and Don and people like that. Yeah, no, I just, yeah, I was just brand new, really. Yeah, it was Don uh, and David that told me about you. Um, so, yeah, I'm glad we, we made the connection, and I believe they're coming back to Scotland next month. Um, yeah, last time they were uh, here, uh, myself and it, my girlfriend, we took them out for a day, but this time we've got two days spare, so we'll have to think of more places to do in our tourist. Uh, tour 
we actually took him to Rosalind Chapel. So David is oh, yeah. yeah, so if you think of any yeah, nice places great. to take them, let me know because I'm looking for I think it's gonna be Bannockburn and uh maybe Stirling Castle or who knows, just places in general central Scotland, maybe Loch Lomond for a day. Yeah, I do want to go and see the Wallace Monument again. I haven't been since I was a kid, but I was looking at some pictures of it recently, and it actually looks like a real magical building. Like there's something very yeah. special about that 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 structure. Yeah, so hoping to get back there at some point. Have you seen the statue that's outside? That they've got one of William Wallace, but it looks like Mel Gibson. <laughs> William Wallace is <laughs> but Mel Gibson's five foot three, and they've got this statue. <laughs> that's what Hollywood rewrites history, as we know. And creates yeah, the future. Right. <laughs> so what yeah, was history. alchemy? Oh, sorry. Yeah. So on the alchemy. Yeah. Um, well, actually, you mentioned history being rewritten there. Um, you know, that's a big part of alchemy as well. When you first start looking into it, you know, like um, you you realize that the the people have been sort of slandering history, uh, the history of alchemy for a long time, and trying to, uh, you know, writing articles and books and stuff, trying to make alchemy seem like some like primitive, like superstitious, like witchcraft, you know, that they just had to be abandoned hundreds of years ago because it was like no use to anybody or, or they maybe give it some credit and say, they call it like proto chemistry, you know, like it's like some early chemistry, but well, um, not just people have the idea alchemy that's changing led to gold. That can't be done. They're, you know, wasting their time. It's just these nutters back in the day. trying like Yeah. Mad. yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, and that, that actually is, pretty much spot on exactly what everybody gets taught at school about alchemy like everyone i would spoken to different parts of the world like they all that's you know that's what they were told um i remember being told that by my chemistry teacher um and uh yeah so that that is history revisionism really you know uh, right there you know they, they take something which is sacred and and ancient and they make it sound like profane and you know just uh like a waste of time um, but no, the truth is uh, the alchemy stuff is all right there. You know, I mean, you talk about the occult. I mean, there's, there's occult. there's like stuff that's like hidden, you know, like in the freaking vaults of the Vatican or whatever that, you know, no, no man can read or that, but you know, there's also, there's another kind of occult that's like hidden in plain sight. Right. And, uh, um, it's like the books are there, the artworks are there. Um, you know, the tarot cards, for example, you know, like there's a lot of ancient knowledge from, from long ago, which has been uh just hidden in plain sight in the stories and art and music and, and so on and, and alchemy is that and um you know it's it's you know so when i started looking into it as i say coming from a physics background i'm looking for something that explains the world explains the phenomenal world you know and um and i just found alchemy really just explained it in a way which is so simple and elegant and um it's measurable and repeatable uh, and it deals with concept, you know, things which are, are real, you know, like fire, earth, air and water. You know, these are not, uh, you know, we're not talking about electrons and, you know, pions and, you know, black holes and dark matter. Right. We're, we're talking about like fire, you know, like earth, you know, air, water, like real things. Like um, and uh, and when you really dive into those, what they are, what they mean, what they symbolize, uh what they are within us as well you know so like what the fire is in us what the air is in us what the water is in us and the earth in us um i i just i love it i honestly i, I just it was just like this fountain of knowledge um and i've been researching it for about 10 years now 
and uh, I, I, I was able to apply it to music because <clears throat> alchemy can be applied to any kind of creation or transformation process. It's like uh, it's um, uh, it's like a, a science of transformation, right? So whether you're making music or whether you're making a, a pie or whether you're making whiskey or um, whether you're starting a business or writing a novel <clears throat> or whatever it is, right? You've got to start with your, your base materials and you've got to transmute it through a series of processes into a, a finished um product you know which is going to go out and be a timeless right, a thing a mortal thing in, in the world essentially turning lead into gold basically that's what yeah, you're doing. yeah that's, it. that's the metaphor yeah of lead into gold yeah that's it you've you've started with nothing but your own suffering even that's what carl jung said right you got your you're just sitting there suffering, but you manage to like somehow transmute that suffering into you know a well, joke or you know. That's what I try to do. Yeah, joke. That's what I try to do with my miserable life. You know, <laughs> <laughs> try to make humor out of it. You know, all these disasters yeah, and shit yeah. that have happened. You know, well, it's happened. What are you going to do about it? Cry about it, or try and get the healing in it, make people laugh, and bring some joy out of it. You know. Yeah. And then yeah. people resonate with that, don't they? When they can feel because everyone's gone through these things so some days they're sharing their experience of it and then you can see they've overcome that and they've transmuted the the negative yeah. thing then it's inspirational for them to do it so again yeah we can all learn from these things i found it very interesting as you, you were explaining that how this that process of t getting the raw materials and then sharpening it there's like seven stages i think or something you mentioned mm -hmm. and just when you were yeah. talking about that i realized that that's what i've kind of been doing especially mm -hmm. I may have had some poems and I thought they were ready, but when we went to put them to the book, I was like, ah, it needs a bit more, it needs a bit more, it needs a bit more. Fuck, it's never ended, it needs more, you know, and just, it's just, yeah, you have yeah. to polish it right up to when you want to get it to be as good as it needs to be. And that takes time and effort, and there's no shortcut to alchemy, really. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's it. It's this kind of like patient um, and gentle, you know, gentle and patient, like transformation, you know, over over a period of uh, time uh, towards some like, you know, perfect uh, uh, or near perfect. Um, so if you're you know, saying you're doing it in your music, yeah. if you're doing it in mm -hmm. your music, this new album is Alchemy. So how does the steps relate to specifically you making music? I'm going to use Alchemy and music. I've said that to my son. Say, like, what's he talking about? You know, it's ridiculous. What is alchemy in music? Um, well, well, with music, it's well, it's a creative process, right? So you're starting with uh, what you're starting with. Now, let's say you've got a guitar, right? You got your instruments. Uh, now you've got a computer, so you've got the means of recording and making beats and stuff like that. Okay, so you know that's all like. Um, <clears throat> You're, you're kind of start, starting materials, right? So the first stage of the alchemy is, is a kind of preparation stage. Uh, you have to, you know, like, for example, your instruments have to be tuned, right? You know, if your instruments are out of tune, you're never going to be able to make music. So, you know, that's uh, that's like a, a calcination, what we call a calcination, like first stage uh, of the alchemy, because it's um, it's kind of a preparation. It's very logical. Um, it's like precise work, you know, you've got to make a lot of decisions, right? When you're like tuning something and, 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 you know, if you're going to make a song, uh, it needs, you need to make a lot of decisions. You need to decide what, you know, what key it's going to be and how fast it's going to be, what style it's going to be, how long it's going to be. Um, you know, there's a lot of, uh, there's just a lot of like conscious mind decisions, rules, limits have to be set, 
before the music can be made. Um, but once all that's in place, your instruments are tuned, you've, you're, you're set up, you're good to go, you're plugged in, then you can start playing music. And that's an emotional release. That's like the second stage of alchemy has to do with water. Um, and, you know, when we're playing music, when we're expressing ourselves, we're, we're flowing, we're in a state of creative flow. Um, and of course, in music, we want to capture that, right? So when someone's in flow, they're in a state of flow, you want to capture it and record it because that's, that's the gold, right? Um, but once you've, uh, you've recorded a, a session um, of people playing, they go in the third stage of alchemy, which is what we call the separation, which is really when you, you have to sort through everything that you have, right? You're going to have all these recordings, um, all this stuff that you've made. <clears throat> you really need to sort through it all and separate what is good from what you're you know what's crap or what you're, you're just going to leave um or what can be improved or whatever <clears throat> and then there's a whole process of sorting through all your your kind of recordings and everything you've made choosing what's best and then bringing that all together and that's the fourth stage the conjunction which is a bringing together of all your your best bits right so um <clears throat> now you you have something you've got the best drums bits that you made your best bass your best guitar parts or whatever you bring all that together. You create a you create a song. Now you have something. Um, I'll, I'll say like, you know, I've made like eighty or ninety tracks, maybe actually over a hundred, probably. Um, and you know, you get to that stage where you've you've sort of made it and it's there, it's laid out, it has a beginning and a middle and an end. Um, but you listen to it a bunch of times and it's just it just starts to sound shit again you're just like oh this really isn't that good is it i mean i'm just throwing this together on the computer it's just a bunch you know <laughs> as you, you've got to work it more so these are like what we call the fermentation which is about putting new life into something right so bringing like new giving it a new lease of life um and and i do that in editing you know people and in electronic music especially people do a lot of editing you know uh indeed um a lot of artists probably just make their music entirely with editing. You know, <laughs> they, they never play an instrument or play anything. It's all just edited with like, you know, keyboard and mouse. So, you know, um, you can do that. But then, then the final two stages of music is the mixing stage. So once you've edited it all, once you, you've got your track and it's sound good and it's got that new life in it and you're happy with it, you then have to mix it all. That is to get everything balanced. All the sounds like really balanced. And I relate that to the distillation process in alchemy. Um, and then the final stage of the music is the mastering process or the, the releasing of it, which is like the coagulation, because at that point it becomes an actual song in the history of music, you know, for the world to uh, enjoy. But before, before you release it, um, it's just a, a project on your computer. Um, you know, it's just sort of in your mind, as it were. Um, and it does, it's got to take that leap from being in you to being out there. And and for it to do that, you know, it has to meet a certain professional standard of, you know, what uh, it is. I mean, you know, and, and that's why the seven steps are necessary. You know, if you just, if you just, uh, you know, try and skip to the end or release something really quick, it won't sound like a professional finished product. And then that just looks bad on you, doesn't it? And then, um so anyway so it, it basically allowed me to to look at my process and making music break it down into seven clear and distinct stages and then teach people about music uh through those you know through by teaching them about those seven stages which i could teach them about in depth so you know at the retreats we would have a whole day devoted to each 
of the seven stages, you know, and I would do a presentation in the morning and then we'd do demonstrations, uh, like music demonstrations after that. And then people would go away at their laptops and sit and, you know, work, you know, you know, work on it or whatever. So, um, so there's a lot of depth I can go into basically on each of the seven steps. Um, and you also have things like the four elements, earth, air, fire, and water, which also have correspondence in music. Um, so like earth corresponds with rhythm, like the rhythm and the drums, you know, that's the kind of earthy aspect of the music. Um, the watery aspect is the bass, like you hear like the, the low frequencies, you know, um, is what gives the emotion to the music. You know, it, really, if you take the bass out of music, there's no emotionality in it at all. Like it's... Uh, it's there, that, but um, you don't really hear that prominently, the bass in a lot of tracks, but, you know, it's yeah. a vital component of the, the music. You know, it's that link between the drums and the uh, more melodic elements. The bass kind of provides the bridge between them, do yeah. you think? Well, yeah, it's it, it's the it provides the root frequency, so it's like the longest wave, you know, um, which kind of it's like a it's like as big as your body, you know. It's like a it, so the bass kind of encompasses you and it moves the the waters in your body, um, and uh, you know the high frequency doesn't move the waters in the body. I mean, you you talk about the cymatics, you know, when you look at those water, um, they're like a, you know a water puddle or whatever, and they put vibrations through it. Um, you know, it only it only responds to frequencies within a certain range in the base frequency range. When you get up too high, it doesn't, you know, you don't see the details quite so much. But um, uh, anyway, yeah, so, you know, fire, earth, air and water. So when the air component of music is like melody, because with melody, it's all about the mind. It's about your voice. Melody is is the is like the music of how we speak, you know, you know, um, melody is yeah. It's the it's the, the tones of, of of how we we speak, um, and, well, what and makes fire. What makes a good melody? Yeah. yeah. Well, I like I like sort of like counterpoint where um, you know there'll be like a uh, a certain melodic phrase w will begin and then it will be it will be answered slightly differently, like maybe in a, like an opposite kind of way. So like, a, you know, go up here and then down there kind of thing, you know, the, and there'll be like, a, I like that kind of call and response um, um, type thing. But um, yeah, I mean, well, just just to finish up then. So the fire of the fire aspect of music um, is the the dynamics, right? The actual like movement of the music, the breath, you know, how it's moving, how it's being expressed, like the tam the timbre of it, you know, you talk about in music like a, a hot signal is a distorted signal, right? It's when the energy is turned up, full, it's like uh, coming in hot, you know. Um, uh, so when there's lots of harmonics and stuff like that, that's the kind of fiery aspect of the music. Um, and so, so yeah, you, basically you can very clearly take all the the concepts of alchemy and map them to um, all all the fundamental concepts of music, and and they map across in a very logical way you know they, they they correspond with each other um and so yeah it just allows me to uh look at the two look at music and alchemy you know together in the same way like a as in music is alchemy um and i'm certainly not the first person to make that claim you know uh, carl jung also uh said that music making is a, is a form of alchemy um and uh you know so it's not a, a new idea but certainly when i well, 
when I thought about it, I was just like, yeah, this is amazing. Like, you know, I love it. Oh, rock and roll, like the devil's music, you know, and they'll say that like, alchemy is like witchcraft kind of thing. It's that idea that music can make people lose their minds and do, do crazy shit, you know, like, I guess <laughs> even you mentioned Elvis, because there was a big reaction to that, but maybe it even was, I never heard of this 440 thing, but maybe there was a kind of, kind of almost physical reaction to people kind of saying, what is this? It's dissonant. We've never heard this before and to be quite shocking, mm -hmm. but at the same time, they create that rebellious go against your generation. That was the start of the teenagers and, you know, it became cool to like get into that kind of sound, didn't it? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I don't, I don't know how much conspiracy theories you're into, but what do you think about Elvis? Obviously, Colonel Parker was um, seemed to be in control of him, but there's lots of talk of him. He was in the CIA and he was going around and he's got his alternative mission almost. And, you know, would, would it have been his idea, basically, I'm saying, to, to bring the 440 in? Do I think that was his controllers because they knew? Because he, he would have been playing a normal tune, you would have thought. Yeah, I don't. I don't think it would have been his idea. No, I mean, you know, my, my time in the music industry, as I say, I was in America as well for three years, so I saw a lot of, uh, you know, the, you know, how it really works. I got a, you know, I got a sense of how it really works, and I, I looked a lot at the Mark Devlin stuff as well. You know, um, yeah. you know, Mark Devlin, yeah, and, um, yeah. Honestly, I think anybody who's playing the game at that level, like Elvis. Uh, level yeah. is totally planted there. You know, they're yeah. completely planted there. There's a whole corporation behind yeah. them putting them there, you know, and I, I never had, you know, that was, I never had that behind me. I was driving myself, you know, and, uh, but I, I met, I met people, you know, some other artists and that, you know, particularly in America, you know, who, who were just to totally being driven. I mean, this one kid, you know, <laughs> He'd only had like you know he'd only been releasing records for like three years, but he's out there playing you know shows to like unbelievably large crowds, getting crazy amounts of money. He's like you know he's about half my age. <laughs> his music's awful, like you know, and he's not he's actually not even allowed to go to a show without his manager because he's such a liability. You know, he just causes like you know he was just like this crazy you know like uh, I don't know. I guess they thought he was a genius, but this kind of crazy guy and uh you know he was being handled you know you could see he's being handled by a corporation you know um and so, yeah, think... sorry there was an interview with mike, yeah, mike williams uh with mike, mike stock of stock aiken and waterman recently and stock mike stock said um he was doing that successful independently they had something i think it was something like 29 it could have been more than that 29 percent of all the record sales were for it, for him. And he says, it got to a point that the industry just stopped them. They couldn't get any single past 41. And basically they were dodging all his numbers to make them, it was a different chart now, they were creating different charts and all this stuff. And effectively they says, you've got too much power, too much influence, and it's no allowed to continue. And basically he's had to do it in the downside since then, you know, just still working with record companies, but the whole stocky kind of warming thing got killed. Out in this out and out mafia basically done it. Yeah, and that was yeah. to me quite telling, you know. Yeah, it's, it seems like there's kind of there's like a glass ceiling or whatever, or you know, there's an in club, you know, uh, and and yeah, I, I certainly got a, se a sense of all that, and um, you know, I heard about a lot of the satanic stuff, like particularly in like Hollywood, uh, and that I played in LA a few times, and um, you know, I heard 
you know, I heard about uh, uh, that, that kind of stuff that goes on. Um, and, so you had to, and yeah, I, there was a sense of uh, that I wasn't in the club. You know what I mean? Like, I, I, you know, I meet people, but you know, it was also the sense that there's this, there's this in club, uh, and I, and I'm not in it. You know, George George Carlin, right? It's like it's a big club, and you ain't in it. Yeah, I was like, I was never in the club, like, but um, you know, uh, but I think that I exists in all all industry and all kind of areas yeah. of life, doesn't it? Because I found the same. Yeah. I don't know if it's just I rub people up the wrong way, but I just don't seem to. Because I was talking the truth, my first gig I was talking about 2012, back in 2000, you know, just to grab the mic and I'm ranting for five minutes, I don't know anything about comedy, I thought you just talk shit. But I was there to try and, yeah, I thought you could come naturally and just be a comedian and get more time on stage, but you know, they want to control it, oh, you need a tight five and they need to see that tight five over and over again and, you know, and then it's just about playing the game to try and get gigs to make these promoters to please their crowds and the crowds don't want to be can any offence or anything these days especially it's a nightmare and it's just like a big game to make the promoters money and to keep the whole thing going but not to actually do the whole job of comedy which is to reveal the truth and you know talk about issues that people want to hear like I couldn't get I've been barred for everywhere for trying to talk about COVID off stage not even on stage so <laughs> it's <just> yeah. insanity. <laughs> so it's very yeah, all, all the best people that. get banned. <laughs> yeah. Did you find it frustrating that you couldn't get there's a glass ceiling for you, or is that why you kind of put you off because you're only getting the bigger gigs, or were you just happy doing your own thing all that time? Yeah, I mean, I was following. You know, I I, I was. You know, I was on course. I was like living my dream, as it were. I was just like making music, and I would go wherever I was invited. But then, um, yeah, after I came back after three years in America, and then coming back here, I had a lot of sort of work to do at home, and I was playing some shows in Europe, like 2018, 2019. Uh, you know, I did some shows, but it, it felt different. You know, I was feeling like, um, you know, because I, I, you know, I want to write books, man. You know, I want to, I do presentations. You know, I've, I've been researching my whole life. There's a lot of things I want to do. And I was starting to feel like, you know, maybe I, I could uh, take a break from DJing because I've been at it since I was like 12 years old or something. And then, of course, I say that break was kind of taken for me, like in, in 2020. And, and then, as I say, well, after I had that pause and that time to reflect and uh, I'm actually quite enjoying, you know, just not having to go traveling. And, you know, I'm, I, I'm not um, itching to go out to the parties and that again. Um, but, you know, I'm still I still work on music and stuff. and. Uh, um, I think I'll probably get get the urge to go back out and play music again at some point, but uh, you know it's been like two yeah. and a half years without it, and I'm I'm enjoying the break for now. Yeah, sometimes I guess it was a bit of a forced break, but yeah, having a forced break can basically make people do different things and have that time out that you wouldn't necessarily have had. Yeah, um, yeah. Which I think that done a lot for people. Although again, it's enforced, but a lot of people then suddenly had the time to think about what they're doing with their time during the lockdown, yeah. and um, yeah, and obviously the past two years has been pretty crazy. Have you found you've kind of lost a lot of what you would have considered old friends and gained a lot of new ones that are kind of more in sync with yeah you, you resonate with? That's been quite an interesting process. Yeah, yeah, totally. Um... Yeah, I mean, I think a, a lot of relationships were strained um, in the in those years, um, just 
from yeah just information you know you're just like discovering information and you start talking to people about it and then <laughs> people are just like oh and it's just like awkward it's too awkward you can't speak anymore because like they're here on this position you're in that position and and yeah it's <laughs> yeah there's been a lot of uh awkward moments and uh relationships have just kind of like fizzled away but um <clears throat> What do you put that down to the way people's brains just can't seem to compute just having a normal conversation? Is it just a level of programming that's going through? What's wrong with people, you know? <laughs> well, I think I think it's, it's, it's this kind of difference between like an online relationship and an offline relationship, isn't it? Like, like if you if it's just your mate or, you know, someone in your street or whatever and they say something you don't like, it's like, who gives a damn? You're going to see them again tomorrow. You know, you're going to just carry on with a different conversation. You get, okay, they don't like that thing. We won't talk about it. We'll just move on or whatever. So, you know, if you're it's people you're seeing all the time, then you just get along with them, even if you have your differences. But I think if it's like online, this is <laughs> this temptation. Just like if you're not in the same subculture and you're not aligned in the same things, it's just like block, you know, because there's like oh. a thousand other people, you know, <laughs> who can just like come in at. I don't know, I, you know, that, that, that could be it's just this kind of, you know, the, the ease with which we can uh, uh, make and lose relationships in in an online environment, you know, it's just the, just the click yeah. of a button, isn't it? Yeah, I've done it myself quite a lot. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I'm sure I've been blocked quite a lot as well. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah. People react a lot more rude and say a lot more things that you wouldn't say directly to people's faces, you know, kind of lost that element of, you say that, you've got a punch in the mouth, mate, you know, because yeah. it's been online, which has made people a little yeah. bit more rude, I think. But, but yeah, I think the, the, the silver lining has been, you know, that um, a lot of new connections have, you know, uh, formed and uh, new alliances and new, new cultures are emerging. Um, and in a way, it's sort of everyone's like revealing their hand, you know, there's yeah. this, uh, <laughs> yeah, like everyone's just like revealing their hand uh, or, you know, or not, or hiding it still, but yeah. There used to be a game years ago called Run Around with Mike Reed where you used to run to the front and then you used to choose your one, two or three, you had to jump into a pile. It seems like <laughs> it's just like it's time to make a decision and we're over here. You, yeah. Like I've, I've been listening, I interviewed Steve Faulkner and he mentioned this guy Archaix on YouTube. I don't know if you listened to his stuff, it was quite interesting. I've heard um, I've heard of him, but I've I've not checked it out. No, uh, it's just basically he's got this idea that essentially two thirds of the people here are a program, and this reality has created artificial intelligence simulation, and it's got a thing that's going to run out a time. You know, there's a program that's going to get enacted out, and it's going to end at a specific point for another kind of reset to keep on happening. Maybe he says 138 years, smaller ones and bigger ones over bigger time periods. And it says 2040 is going to be a really big one. It's going to change our whole ecosystem to like a water-based canopy again where we used to live and we used to be giants back then, but the canopy fell and under the sun we've kind of became smaller humans, but that time's coming back. So within this artificial simulation, the main story is going to run and it's our job to kind of find our own path within that and create our own reality. Again, the nature of reality, Don Lester, David Parker talking, this thing that we can do that if we put our mind and will to it, which is again is part of alchemy as well. It's creating your, it's using these elements, isn't it, to some part of creation involved in alchemy and focus and direction. Mm-hmm. And that's really, the, and it's almost like he's kind of claiming where you are when this event happens will decide your kind of future or 
you know, some people not going to make it, they might go back into another pattern of existence, and the ones that will make it will kind of progress. It's almost like this is a big university of life that we're yeah. graduating or yeah. not graduating from, and some obviously aren't going to make it, and they're taking the shot because they're. I don't know. It's like to me, it's like you don't deserve life almost if you're not thinking about what you're putting in your body, based on what some guy's telling you on the TV. You know, so it's like an IQ yeah, test. Yeah. Do you have any thoughts about this kind of stuff just before we wrap up? Yeah, I mean, uh, I yeah, the, the idea of like loops and uh, you know, the, the, well, certainly the, the idea that it was we were giants long ago. Yeah, we didn't come from the slime, right? We didn't like uh, yeah. from the slime. Or, <laughs> what is it uh, from? Z- <laughs> Uh, about evolution, it's uh, from from goo to you via the zoo, right? <laughs> goo to you via the zoo, right? Uh, so yeah, I, I stopped believing in evolution a long time ago, and uh, yeah, and then and you know, recent research absolutely seems to indicate that everything was bigger. Uh, you know, in in the past, um, like everything was bigger. You know, it wasn't just giant humans and like miniature animals. You know, I think everything uh, was bigger. Um, the animals would have been bigger. The trees would have been bigger. It's uh, I don't know. Maybe the air pressure was less, you know, and allowed for like greater growth. But with like you know denser air pressure, things can't grow as much. I'm not sure. Um, but yeah, I'm I'm definitely open to all that and the the resets as well. It, it does when you look back through history. It does sort of look like that, doesn't it? That there's these um, there's these resets. And now that of course they're even talking about it, the Great Reset. Um, and, and yeah, in terms of the simulation theory, I mean, uh, I think it, it works. I mean, it's like a fractal, you know, that there is no better model of reality than a video game. <laughs> it's, yeah. it's like the best sort of representation of reality that we have. And in a way, it's like, uh, you know, my kids, they, they obviously, you know, they're growing up with video games just like I did. And they think about life through through that lens, you know, and uh, but, you know, the game Minecraft. Yeah, the kids all play right, so you can play at survival mode, where you you know you can die and you've got to find all your materials before you can build and stuff like that, or you can play in creative mode, where you have infinite amounts of all materials and you never and you never die. And you know, my wee boy, he's five years old. He said, you know, he said to me, "God is in creative mode, and humans are in survival mode." <laughs> you know, and I thought, well, that's actually like quite profound isn't it yeah it's like you know we are you know is exactly how it is you know we don't have infinite resources and you know we do have to we do have to survive you know we have to pull things together and make the most of what we've got but um so so anyway yeah so i think uh that is the kind of a fractal thing there the, the computer games are like reality reality is like a computer game um and the question as to whether npcs are real you know are there actually people in the world who are just uh part, part of the program um <laughs> I, I it's really kind of starting to look like it isn't it i mean uh um yeah I, I don't like i don't like to dehumanize people at all of course i don't like to dehumanize people but the whole concept of an npc you know, start to think well there's so many there's so many people um you know in the bible it says that the human beings are as the sand of the sea, right? As the sand of the sea. So just like grains of sand, you know, it's just like, there's just human beings like everywhere. There's so many of us. Um, so uh, could it be that a large chunk are just completely on autopilot, like governed by some external force? I mean, I, I think, yeah, that's quite plausible. Yeah, yeah. I guess I need a certain amount of people to build the shit and run the shit and 
it's up to the individual to not be satisfied with that, to then want to create their own reality and they need mm-hmm. everything else to just keep going. So there has to be those people who are happy to go to the nine to five job and the rest of us that will kill us mm-hmm. to do that. So we have to find creative ways to, you know, not live that life. And maybe that's yeah, just yeah. part of the game. I mean, do you, do you know about the uh, the Hayoka? Have you heard this word, Hayoka? No, what's that? I think you'd be interested. So it's the uh, it's a Native American uh, term meaning sacred clown, All right. sacred clown, right? And uh, yeah, so uh, I, I just came across it like in the last year or so, and I found myself really relating to it strongly. So you know, they it, it ties in with like the archetype of the jester, right? The archetype right, of the cool. jester, right? So the idea of the sacred clown is like this guy in the tribe who does everything different from everybody else. You know, he does everything like backwards. He like dresses, you know, he dresses funny. He'll like dress in colorful clothes and like wear, you know, like stuff uh, like bones and all that, you know, around his neck and everything like just uh, uh, dresses different, dresses provocatively. Um, and is also uh, uh, related to satire. You know, he's a satirist. Yeah. You know, he'll say the things that nobody else can say. Right. Um, and uh you know, they say he, he lives backwards from everyone else, like does everything uh, differently from everyone else. And, you know, I, I find myself just, uh, the more I looked into it, just relating to this, like, uh, massively, you know, like, um, particularly like with the DJ thing. So I, I made this correspondence between the DJ and the clown, you know, which I, I hadn't made before. But when you think about it now, it's really obvious. You're like, well, think about clowns and DJs. It's actually quite a similar sort of thing, isn't it? You know, you're getting up there, you got colorful clothes on you're on the stage uh it's it, you know it's dance you're, you're helping people to like lose their inhibitions you know um in a way you know it's uh it's um you know the 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 role of the dj and the role of the clown are very similar in that in that regard um <clears throat> but uh the you know so the certainly the the, the heoka kind of archetype it, it, it encompasses like you know as i say comedians you know, uh, DJs um, and artists and shaman, uh, you know, people like this, they're kind of like outcasts from society. They do things different. They're provocative um, and uh, they teach people, they help others to wake up by reflecting back the, the the parts of the unconscious that people are not talking about, that they're not seeing, you know. Um, and uh, yeah, it's worth looking into, man. Um, I, I think I think you'll relate to it a lot being a comedian and um you know, I found like a lot of the people I've, I've I've been into over the years, a lot of the authors I looked at, you know, people like Terence McKenna, you know, Robert Anton Wilson, like Bill Hicks, you know, like all of these characters, like they're all Hayoka characters, right? You know, they 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 stand out um, in that regard, and and they you learn a lot from them, right? By them just getting up there, like and doing things differently, saying the the opposite thing from mm. what everybody else is saying. Um, it actually has a transformative effect on the on the culture, you know. So, um, so yeah. So the the you know the the jester, the clown, the the comedian, whatever, has a sacred role in the Native American culture, um, and should have a sacred role in all cultures. But you know, as you're seeing now, like it's you know you're being censored and stuff like that because you know the jester is not allowed to make jokes about the <laughs> king anymore <laughs> or whatever. Yeah. Cause the king's so bloody insecure because he's just lying all the time. <laughs> Definitely. Yeah. You could do yeah. some more 
now we've got Liz Trust, never mind, and Charlie, what what a pair that is, you know. I know. <laughs> so I went on holiday for a few days and came back, and it was like we had a new king and a new prime minister, and nobody's had a damn thing to say about it, you know. What you do? Yeah, people, I don't know, they just go along with what the mainstream, the news is telling them, but we're actually thinking about who these people are and what they're doing. It's, I mean, let's trust, where does she come from? And she's just going to be following orders from the World Economic Forum, as we all know. It's, yeah. She's got no personality. They all read from a script. That's what gets me. None of these people can speak from their heart, whereas a yeah. clown or your jester or that, you know, they've got the intelligence to be in the moment and make the joke and do the thing. But all these guys are just like, what's been told, they will repeat, like, you know, and... Yeah, literally uh, puppets. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Like actors, you know, like um, no offense to like actors of the art of acting, but, you know, an actor reads a script. You know, an actor is a person who reads a script, right? And uh, it's like, but who writes the script? (laughs) It's not the actor, you know. Uh, (laughs) Director. uh, Yeah, yeah, exactly. So it's like, yeah, these, these script readers on the TV, you know, people are getting their information from script readers you know instead of from people who are actually able to just speak from the heart and from experience they're getting yeah. it read to them you know um by these kind of faceless you know media um or not faceless but i, I guess kind of soulless you know media <laughs> faces you know yeah. um, just reading the the auto cue that's her job not to tell the truth yeah <laughs> yeah i mean like just to go back to what you were saying earlier about when things changed uh you know in 2020 and relationships changed and stuff well you know one of the things that i noticed i was thinking about a lot was this issue of authority you know talk about people being sheep right you know this is whole thing sheep you know you're a sheep in that um but you know the sheep the the symbolism of the sheep right is that the the sheep follows the shepherd you know sheep, sheep don't follow other sheep right they'll follow the shepherd right that's the ideas um and and so what what I'd come to realize is that like back here was like people were all looking to the sh- the shepherd. The TV was the shepherd, right? The 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 you know the prime minister or whatever uh, was the shepherd, and everyone just lined up to that, right? And and so like if if I came in as an independent authority and I'm saying, oh no, I've been doing research in natural medicine for years, you know, I don't believe in you know this for that reason. It's like it was just bounce off them because i'm not the shepherd i'm not their shepherd like you know <laughs> they don't follow me like it's like you know they don't go to me for science they don't you know they don't go for me for you know instructions in a pandemic you know i'm i was nobody's shepherd in that regard except my own family my own children and stuff but um yeah so it, that that was weird for me it was like the the way like everyone just like turned to you know chris witty and you know uh-huh. people like this and you know just be like we have to you know listen to everything this person says and take their instruction like that was trippy man yeah that's quite a good analogy you know thought of it like that before yeah but we, we are not the shepherd so why do we yeah, try we, yeah, that's it we're without a shepherd you know that's it. i mean i would love it if if we had a, a great leader or a, a great king that i could look up to and admire and take inspiration from i mean i would love that but um i've you know, searched the world high and low and it seems to me the best people are you know independent people who've you know done their own you know they've lived their lives they've done their best and they're you know they've woken up and they're you know they're trying to do the right thing by their heart 
Um, and, and, and that's where I see, you know, the best people at the moment. But when I look up to these authority figures and stuff like that, it's just, it's dark, man. I mean, it's like, there's nobody to look up to in the physical world like, out there at the moment, you know, it's all that, all, all that was once great. If it ever was great, it's, it certainly isn't anymore. It's like, um, crumbling, you know, but that's also quite exciting because, uh, you know, it feels like something big's going to happen over the, the next few years really, doesn't it? It does things have to fall apart before they can be built on you kind of thing. So yeah, yeah. I'm going to have to wrap this up because I've got another show in 10 minutes and it's been very enjoyable talking to you. I could go on, but um, I'd like to thank you very much for your time. I'll just show this here. You've got a few different sites. I've borrowed this from your presentation, Andrew Kaufman. So I'm going to bring this up just let people see where to find you. Yeah. Got oh, yeah. Flux. So the ones, the ones at the top there are active. Obviously, the headflux.com, Luminous Music, my record label. A telegram channel and my email there headflux at gmail.com and then those other sites are just uh domains that i own that i'm currently working on but they're not live yet but i'm working on a personal site and a site for audio alchemy in that as well so yeah thank you people can screenshot that and keep it in mind and then get in touch with your work on headflux.com but it's been a pleasure talking to you steve thanks very much for your time i hope to do it again with you sometime and yeah, in the meantime thanks really you have a good night, and everyone else, thanks for watching. And we'll be back in 15 minutes with an episode of Shooting the Ship. In the meantime, cheers and out. <laughs> cheers.